1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6-11. through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in, the, in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Well, you don't have to read too many children's stories or fairy tales to read to realize that often these stories are full of evil beasts prowling around. I was thinking in particular this week of the story of Little Red Riding Hood. It's a story that appears to go back to about the 10th century, uh, perhaps first really written in a recognizable form by the French writer Charles Perrault. And in his version of the story, Little Red Riding Hood meets the wolf on her way to grandma's house to bring her some food. And the wolf asks her where she's going. And she says, well, I'm going to grandma's house. Well, the wolf, of course, beats her there, devours grandma. And then Little Red Riding Hood encounters the wolf in grandma's clothing and She says, well, Grandma, what big eyes you have. Well, the better to see you with, my dear. What a strong voice you have. The better to greet you with, my dear. What big teeth you have. The better to devour you with, my dear. And so Little Red Riding Hood is gobbled up along with her grandma, all because she was not alert to the dangers posed by this ravenous wolf. And in Charles Perrault's version of the story, that's the end. That's the moral of the story. Uh, Of course, the Brothers Grimm expanded on it by showing that there was a local hunter who rescued her and her grandma, taking uh, his weapon and cutting open the foul beast. I like that version of the story because then you also get a taste of the gospel in it. Children's stories teach us about the world, don't they? Of course, in this case, we learn to be watchful for predators, to be alert to their schemes. Uh, In fact, uh, the moral of the story, or a moral of the story, according to Charles Perrault, who did write the moral of his story, even was to warn young women to be wary of rakes who would use them and then abandon them. Well, children's stories teach us about the world. There are ravenous beasts out there, and there is one in particular that Peter writes about here. He is the one who makes our trials as believers so powerful. Remember, Peter is writing to a group of Christians in northern Asia Minor who are faced with persecution for their faith. And Peter is teaching here that there is indeed an adversary behind this opposition and that it would serve his purposes very well for us to be devoured by him. But there is a way to overcome the devil, 
There is a way to overcome the trials that he throws at you. For God himself will bring you through these short trials so that you may enjoy eternal glory with him. And so to understand how to overcome, we read here several commands. First in verses 6 through 7, to be humbled. Second in verse 8, to be sober and watchful. And third in verse 9, to resist. Be humbled, be sober and watchful, and resist. Now first, you must be humble to overcome these trials, to overcome the devil, because you won't gain victory in your own strength. Now it says to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And uh, if you recall, we have been reading about the necessity of humility for elders, for youths, and then for all people towards one another. That was back in verses 1 through 5. And it closed with this admonition that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so now Peter says, do not only be humble toward each other, but be humble towards your God. Humility before God, of course, depending on your context, can refer to many things. But here, in the challenges that Peter is addressing, he is primarily referring to being prepared to undergo the trials that God has laid out for you. Humble yourself under the one who has your footsteps laid out for you, who knows what trials will befall you and who has prepared it all for you, has prepared all your good works for you, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Humble yourself before God, being willing to walk the steps of trial he has for you, and trust him to, to deliver you at the last day. You know that you will be humiliated in this life simply because you have a faith that contrasts with the world around you. You can't help it. It's just the way that it's going to be. This world does not share our faith, and our faith looks ridiculous in the eyes of the world. And so you're going to experience trials as a result. And it's natural to want to fight back, isn't it? Very, very natural. But God is calling you to bear it with peace. As Peter has instructed throughout this letter to avoid needless conflict, And to do your best to answer when needed, to show show good conduct before your persecutors so that those of goodwill will at least see your innocence, but also to be ready to peaceably stand firm when conflict is inevitable. So Peter instructs us not to fight back against the suffering that God has laid out for us in the life of faith, but instead to be ready to embrace it, but to be ready to embrace it for God's strength. As we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that Paul writes, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So be prepared to embrace suffering for God's sake. And you can do this You can do this if you humble yourself under God's mighty hand. So in in this passage, we have not only the command to be humble, but also the promise 
of deliverance. Because what does God's mighty hand do? God's mighty hand delivers the saints and and defeats his adversaries. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament that we read of God's mighty hand. Yet it's a familiar phrase if you read the Old Testament and especially the book of Deuteronomy. What is the repeated phrase there? That God brought Israel out of Egypt by his mighty hand and also by his outstretched arm. What did God do for the people of Israel by his mighty hand? He redeemed them from slavery. He rescued them from their oppressors. And along the way, he showed Pharaoh's might to be weak before the might of God. So God redeemed his people from slavery. And along the way, he himself embarrassed Pharaoh and judged him in the plagues. And none of this happened by the Israelites taking up arms against Pharaoh, but instead letting God do his work. God's mighty hand has good things in store for you. God's mighty hand will redeem you from everything that you have to endure in this life. And he will put to shame those who oppose him and who oppose you. For God, it says here, will exalt you. But he'll only do it at the proper time. And so no matter what life throws your way during this time of suffering, during this earthly life, at the proper time, God will exalt you. And so your ultimate vindication will not come in this life. It will come when God exalts you at Christ's return. And so if you wish to arrive at this blessed destiny, you should humble yourself now. You should be ready to be patient with God, confident in him to follow through on his promises, because God himself is patiently waiting to reveal his glory. So you too will only be glorified when Christ is. You only will be vindicated when Christ is. But God's patience does not mean that he is at all unable to do it. We read many, many verses ago in this letter that this salvation is ready to be revealed. It's not even that God is waiting so he can gather his strength and eventually rouse himself from bed and get it done. It's ready. It is, God is ready to vindicate Christ and to reveal his glory but he is patient. He's waiting for the right time. And so as you humble yourself under God's mighty hand, you too are able to wait patiently for the right time. Well, how can you do this? God does not ask you just to stew in your troubles. He does give you an outlet to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And in fact, what Peter is saying in, this, in the structure of this sentence is that the proper way to humble yourself is to cast your anxieties on God. God does not call us to be stoic, to have a stiff upper lip. He calls us, though, to take our troubles to the right place. And so you do have action that you can take, even in your humility, 
Enduring suffering in this life for the sake of the gospel is not something that you do passively. You do have something you can do with your suffering in this life because you can cast your anxieties on God. Now, this is not the same thing as taking matters into your own hands, uh, giving back just as good as you get from people. But rather, God is saying that you can even not, you, you don't even need to worry yourself with your troubles. And in fact, worry, in a way, is still saying that God is not able to take care of you, isn't it? For worry says, I'm the one that's got to take care of it for lack of trust in God to do it. So you can cast your anxieties on God and let him handle them. Peter's audience in this letter had serious issues they were dealing with. The loss of status and respect the loss of family standing. In many cases, probably the loss of, li- of their livelihoods. The loss of friends. And of course, a few years after this, they started to experience the loss of life for their faith in the gospel. And yet every one of these anxieties, God is calling you to cast on him. And in fact, this is the way to endure faithfully. For Jesus teaches in the parable of the seeds that for many who hear the gospel and at first believe the cares of the world will choke and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things will enter in and choke the world so that the seed of the gospel in that person's heart proves unfruitful. But when you cast your anxieties on the Lord instead, you find that he is able to deal with them. He is able to comfort you, and you find strength in him to endure what you are suffering with peace. And I love the picture that Peter paints of casting your anxieties on him. Uh, This is not a word that we find often in scripture, but the few times we do see it, I think are very instructive. And my favorite time is in, it's in the Septuagint of 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 21 where they're getting ready to bury a man who has died. And, uh, and I, I forget exactly what happens, but there, there's some kind of danger that lurks. And so they have to hustle. And so what do they do? They toss the man's body into Elisha's grave. And it's the same word there, tossing him in. Uh, you know, you, the, throwing your anxieties on God is not like taking a little wadded up ball of paper and tossing it in the garbage. You can heap your troubles high on God. Toss your entire bag of garbage. Toss your bags and sacks of laundry. Pile them as high as the sky on God because he is able to handle it. He is strong. The burden that you cast on him is never too great for him to bear. And he cares for you. He will not hear your prayers and be unmoved. He may not take away your troubles in this life. Sometimes he will. Sometimes he won't. But he will never be unmoved. He sympathizes with you and cares for you in your suffering. How many times does God speak of himself as as taking you under his wings the way that uh, a mother eagle takes her, her little bird, birdlings, eaglings, under her wings. 
God cares for you. How often do you see beautiful, uh, uh, adorable pictures online of, of a mother cat with her kittens? Or, for that matter, sometimes you see of, of an animal adopting a child of a completely different species. God has such deep care for you. Peter is hearkening back to Psalm 55 here, where it says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He will sustain you as you cast your burdens on him. And God's care for you is shown most magnificently in Christ joining you in suffering and sacrificing himself to redeem you. It says in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus describes himself in John 10 as the good shepherd saying that the hired hand flees because he cares nothing for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus walks with you in suffering. He has experienced it firsthand. He knows what it is like to suffer even death for the sake of righteousness. He has endured everything that you go through and worse. He knows what it is like. So he is strong because he overcame it for your sake. And he is able to, uh, he is able to give you his strength to endure. And so as you experience suffering in this life for the gospel, you humble yourself before God and you bring your troubles to him. But you also must be sober and watchful for the enemy who brings these troubles. Now once again, this word, be sober-minded, the Greek word is just sober. You can't be drunk and watch out for, uh, for fierce predators. And as you'll remember, it says in 1 Peter 4, 7, that you are to be sober for the sake of your prayers. Sobriety and watchfulness uh, for your enemy includes praying well. Remember, you wouldn't seek an audience with a king or with the president by chugging a six-pack of beer first, right? You would not enter into the heavenly throne room in that state of mind. So pray well. Be sober. Be watchful. Be on your guard. Watch out for the devil and his activity in the world. See him for who he is, because he is your adversary. So be alert to what he is trying to do to you. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Be aware, be alert, just as a good soldier or a good shepherd keeps watch for threats. And so then we have this word, be watchful. And this word watchful is also frequently in the scriptures used to refer to prayer. And in fact, the Lord himself admonished Peter in Matthew chapter 26 for not being able to keep watch for an hour in prayer. It's the same word used there. So be sober, be watchful, be sober and watchful in prayer. Be alert to what the devil is trying to do. For you are watching out for an adversary, a fierce adversary, and an enemy who 
is behind, directly or indirectly, the suffering you experience for your faith. Nothing would suit his purposes better than for you to buckle under persecution. He is dangerous. There's a reason that Peter refers to him with a lion, as a lion. Uh, I mean, can think about David's story of his battles with lions, and it's a remarkable thing that he was able to go toe-to-toe with lions. It's meant to be a shocking thing when a man can do that. And even in Peter's context, it's, it's unlikely that, that believers had yet been thrown to lions for the sake of their faith. And yet some of Peter's readers would have seen other criminals be devoured by lions in the Colosseums. They were not unfamiliar with what a lion can do to a human being. He is scary. He is a roaring lion. One time uh, I was sitting out in the, back, uh, in, the, in the dark of night on my back porch, uh, and I live kind of on the edge of the countryside, and I was just having a nice quiet think, and I heard a growl in the backyard. Just a growl, and I was instantly back inside. <laughs> Didn't even hear a roar, and I don't know what kind of animal. It could have, who knows what it was. Um, I went inside pretty quickly. The devil is a roaring lion, and he hopes to intimidate you so that you will succumb. And he is powerful enough to overcome you if you let him, but we'll get to that in a second. He is prowling around. He is actively looking out for those whom he can destroy. He is on the hunt. He is not just hoping somebody falls into, across his path, but he is looking for you, and he is ready to devour It is his desire to destroy you. He intends nothing but your harm. He hopes that you stumble and fall and that he will be able to tear you limb from limb. And he'll settle for one. He is ready to devour someone. He is seeking someone to devour. He will take you out one by one if need be. He doesn't need to attack the whole church all at once, although sometimes he does. But one saint at a time will do. But you are not helpless. For we read here in verse 9 that you can resist him. Perhaps a little bit better translated, take your stand against him. Why would you give Satan, the devil, the pleasure of destroying you? He is your enemy. He's your adversary. Why would you give him the thrill I certainly don't want to. And so you must resist him. Now, he has plotted persecution in the hope that you will fall, but you must instead stand. Now, he is strong. He is a lion. You can't go up against a lion mano a mano, but you can resist him in faith. In faith, you give confidence, or you have confidence, not in your own strength, but in the strength of God who is stronger than your adversary, the devil, and who will follow through on his promises and who will keep you safe. I love the way that that Hebrews chapter 11 concludes, where the writer says, For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced judgment, justice, obtained promises, 
stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. By faith, all of these people, men and women, kings and prophets and priests, By faith, all of these people were able to stand strong against all that the world and the devil could throw at them. Faith in God is able to overcome every challenge. Remember in the armor of faith of Ephesians 6 that it is the shield of faith that extinguishes the devil's fiery darts. And so what happens by faith? What happens in you by faith? By faith, you see that Christ has already defeated the devil one-on-one in resisting his temptations, as you see in the wilderness. You see that Jesus speaks in Matthew 12 that he has bound the strong man so that he may enter his house and plunder it. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus snatched victory out of the jaws of defeat Through death, he destroyed the devil who has the power of death. Jesus has the strength to do it. And by faith, you see this and you rely on his strength and not your own. So that you see that you have a strong savior and you have nothing to fear from the devil. Strong though he is, and as much as you should hope never to cross his path, In Christ, you have nothing to fear. In faith, you endure in God's strength and not your own, which all requires humility and prayer and sobriety and watchfulness. For these things are God's means to sustain you. Marie Durand was a French Protestant, a Huguenot or a Huguenot if you're in fancy company. And she was imprisoned in the Tower of Constance for 38 years. If I remember correctly, she was put in prison at age 15 for refusing to recant the Protestant faith. Three years after she went into this prison, her brother Pierre, who was a pastor, was hanged at Montpellier. She was asked every day if she would recant. And she said no, she would not. She wasn't, as far as we can tell, tortured. She was imprisoned. And at her death, what did they find scratched into the stonework of her cell? The word resist. Well, remember this. You are not alone. Whatever you suffer in this life for the sake of faith, you are not alone. There are many other brothers and sisters throughout history, throughout the world, 
who are experiencing the same persecution. And in our context, of course, there are brothers and sisters who are suffering much worse than we do here. So Peter teaches us to know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. But rather, being persecuted is a mark of being in the family of faith. Sufferings, as one commentator put it, sufferings are not the personal misfortune of individuals, but they belong to the essence of faith and are signs of its power against evil. So God is at work preserving other believers throughout the world. Why would you think that he's not at work preserving you? Among the saints, you who suffer whatever you suffer, you are not being singled out for ill treatment. This is the common lot of those who have faith in Christ. And as Christ suffered, in union with Christ, you must also suffer. It is simply what it means to be united to Christ. So take heart from the fact that you suffer for the gospel. It's a sign that you have indeed been united to him. And being united to him in his suffering, you can be sure that you are also united with him in all the other aspects of his grace. For the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, but only after you have suffered a little while. He is the God of every grace. There's no division. It is a manifold grace. The word grace here is in, is in the singular. There is one grace. There is no division. It has different ways you can look at it, but they cannot be cut apart from each other. God cannot give you justification or adoption or sanctification and not give you perseverance and one day glorification because it is a single grace. It comes in different aspects, but they cannot be cut apart. God cannot give you one of them and fail to give you another. For it says in Romans 8.30 that those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, you only come into glory in union with Christ, but and being united with him by faith, you must share in his suffering to attain his glory. As it says in Romans 8, if you are children of God, then you are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that you suffer with him in order that you may also be glorified with him. Suffering and future glory in Christ are part and parcel of one another. But take heart. You're only going to suffer a little while. Suffering is for a little while, until the end of your natural life. But glory is eternal. Jesus himself entered into his glory after suffering for a little while. 1,953 years and counting for Jesus, and he's got an eternity more to come. But he did suffer. And now he does await patiently the fullness of his glorification for his the public manifestation of his glory for all to see, for his vindication publicly against all those who oppose him. But even now, he enjoys his glory. 
So remember always the gospel. Remember always what God is promising to you an eternity of glory in Christ. You won't and you can't endure without repeating the gospel to yourself constantly. Remember the promises that are coming for you. This gospel, this message is what feeds you. Just like you can't run a marathon without drinking your Gatorade and eating your energy gels and things like that. You can't run the race of faith without the gospel that feeds you. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Be here at church. Hear the word preached. Participate in the sacraments and pray, pray, pray. Remember the story of those 40 martyrs of Sebaste, 40 soldiers ordered to stand naked on the ice until they either died or recanted their faith. And what did they say? They egged one another on saying, one bad night will purchase us a happy eternity. For when Christ returns, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love the way that Karen Jobes put this. It's a rhetorical crescendo leading to the consummation. These, as you read, if, if you're reading this letter, Peter probably doesn't really mean for you to take apart these four words from one another and find the exact meanings and contrast them. It might be a good article for the Gospel Coalition or Table Talk magazine or something. But this sermon is about this passage as a whole. So, just it's a whirlwind of activity. It's a whirlwind of work that God intends to do in you at Christ's glorification when he raises you up. The only thing I can think of to compare it with is it says in Ephesians 5.27 that Christ intends to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Uh, I've never been there for one in person, but I've seen pictures in wedding albums of all the preparations that go in to getting a bride ready for her wedding day. And it looks like a lot of work. It's many times as long as the wedding ceremony itself, as far as I can tell. Again, never been there. But it's hours and hours of work. That's what God is going to do for you, to prepare you for Christ's glory. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And all to the dominion of Christ forever and ever. All that God is doing in you is leading up to the dominion of Christ. Now, he has been crowned king, but his, his reign will be made visible for everybody to see, and it will be made eternal. Because his kingdom is different from all the kingdoms of the world. For his kingdom is forever. The Romans thought that they had an eternal kingdom, didn't they? But it fell. Every kingdom and every empire so far has fallen. And even the kingdoms that are left when Christ returns will fall when he returns. But Christ's reign is forever. It will cover the whole earth. It already does. And so to him be the dominion forever and ever. But what is a king without a people? 
Christ must ensure that he has a people to be citizens in his kingdom. Saints like you and me. We read in Colossians 1 that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God has made us his children. He has made us citizens in Christ's kingdom. And he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's delivered us from the domain of the devil. And so why would you live as though you're still part of that domain? So be humble, be sober and watchful, and take your stand against the devil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us endurance by faith. We thank you that by faith, the strength of Christ becomes ours so that we may resist the devil. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us always to be praying people. Teach us to heap up our anxieties on you. We pray that you would do all of this for us through the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.